welcome everybody. This is the first episode, I suppose, of our new podcast called Coffee Breakdown, where we hope to have bring on a couple of fusion scientists uh, from beginner to expert and everywhere in between to speak a little bit about their not just their work, but their experiences inside not just fusion plasma science and research, but the scientific world in general. And our objective is to strengthen the connections between this scientific world and the general public through these types of discussions. Um, it's our belief that the expression of the, you know, the creative side of science is crucial to achieving this goal of building that connection. And in part, the practice of good communication skills are going to be very crucial to getting that access. So just keep in mind, everyone here, that this is a learning process, not just for everyone uh, watching, but also for us here speaking about it. So my name is Aaron, if you don't know that, and we're going to introduce our first guest here, which is Michele Marin. I think uh, we've had the luxury of being trapped in the same office for four years. <laughs> so... Um, it's good to bring you on board just to also continue our history of discussions during the coffee break uh, during our, our time together at doing our PhDs. So Michele Marin here is uh, focusing on simulation of plasma, of tokamak fusion plasmas, in particular the aspect of particle or impurity transport. So welcome Michele. Thank you. Um, is there, I guess, anything about that you want to explain to us in, in any uh, form or detail? Yes. So uh, I guess we're going to start a little bit with what I do and introducing the topic itself. So since this is the first episode, maybe it's a good time to do it. Um, so we work on fusion. And in particular, probably at the beginning, it would be mostly uh, magnetic confinement. The idea is we use magnetic field to confine uh, the particles uh, that are charged because they are high temperature. You have four, four states of matter. You have solid, liquid, gas, and then if you heat it even more, the uh, electrons and the uh, protons, they separate, and then they respond to magnetic fields. So you can use them to trap uh, the particles. And then for a series of reasons, we you might learn of them another time, but you use a donut shape uh, magnetic field, and then that proved to be very uh, successful in confining the plasma. So that's the basis of what we do. So then we heat this plasma uh, to pretty insane temperature. The idea is you arrive around 150 million degrees, which is 10 times the temperature of the core of the sun. And from there, you start producing fusion. The uh, fuel, which is deuterium and tritium, the two uh, hydrogen isotopes, uh, start to fuse and produce helium and a neutron. So in this system, uh, you insert particles and uh, heat. And then you will have a plasma that is the most dense, uh, the most hot, and also the uh, 
energy needs to stay there for long enough for the particles to fuse. So we try to study how all of this plays out. And there's a lot of study, okay, I inject energy and then how, the, how much time it stays there and how it transports inside the plasma. And then another part is particles. So the particles themselves will try, we will be injected inside and then we'll slowly try to escape. And then one big question is, okay, how? Uh, so this is what I do. And the idea is uh, how do we study all of this? We build simulations. So we build giant computer codes, we just run them and then we try to study, to reproduce the experiment. So then we can try to uh, invent new experiments or optimize and all the kind of things that come after that. Uh, so I guess the, my, the first part of my work was mostly just with multiple isotopes, with hydrogen, deuterium, and tritium. Uh, that part is probably more important, but also more counterintuitive and technical. So I'm going to talk about the second part. Uh, well, well for, more... first, first, if I might ask, is just to uh, throw this in there, is why is there the three different, like this hydrogen, deuterium, tritium, why is it important to keep track of all three of them or, or more than, let's say, one species in the first place? Okay, yes. So... Um, in the fusion plasma, for experiments, we usually use a hydrogen because hydrogen uh, doesn't fuse at all. So you have zero neutrons and that's just convenient experimentally. Uh, but then when we will be in a fusion power plant, you want deuterium and tritium. So if you use just deuterium and just tritium, the, basically the cross sections, so the probability that the atoms will smash into each other is very low. Uh, or rather low, but then if you use deuterium and tritium, the probability is much higher. So the, ideally, you want at every point a 50%, uh, I, mean, I mean, a, a mix where the deuterium and tritium are in equal amount. And so, then, go ahead. So then it's important to, to capture, let's say, the, the ratios of, of these species at F, inside the plasma. That's why it's important to simulate all of it, I guess, rather than just one and then proxying that it's going to be equal. Yes, it would be, it is not this ratio is not necessarily the same inside the whole machine, it could change. And you want to find kind of the, the optimum or how to maintain uh, a ratio that makes sense close to 50-50. If you go just a little bit away from 50-50, it's kind of fine, it's like a paraboloid. Uh, but the furthest you go, the further you go, the, the worse it is. So you kind of want to stay in that 50-50. And okay. then you don't have just uh, deuterium and tritium. You also have helium because you are producing it. And then it's staying inside the machine. And that might also be a problem. If you make too much helium, it can choke your reaction. So you have to be careful about the helium. And then you have impurities that are just, with impurities, we mean whatever is not uh, deuterium and tritium, whatever is not fuel. Mm. So atoms will just be there because it, purity is impossible. Of course, the, the number of atoms is insanely large. So some atom of everything will be there. And then there will be quite a lot and bit quite a lot, I mean, something between like 1% or something like beryllium, you often have 1%. 
And why do, why do we have beryllium? Because the wall of our uh, tokamak, which is that this um, donut-like chamber, they are made of, be of beryllium. So you usually have 1% of beryllium. And then you might have tungsten because there's the bottom part of the uh, tokamak, which is called the diverter, which is made of tungsten. Then sometimes there's nickel or even uh, impurities that you puff in yourself, like you inject impurities uh, yourself in the plasma because they might help, for example, radiating light in the diverter region, which uh, causes less heat flux to arrive in the diverter. And so the diverter doesn't break. Yeah, right. Because so one of, of the one of the issues is the the material integrity, I guess, as as the because that plasma has to has to exhaust its its heat heat somewhere. Yes. So right. we need to exhaust the heat somewhere. The in the largest experiment we have now is jet, um, and in jet it's kind of fine. So even if you have uh, the maximum heat flux, uh, you kind of have to protect your wall. Uh, they do a lot of puffing and it's uh, to keep the tungsten out mainly, but it's kind of still fine. Uh, I don't know of, of instances where the diverter got really hurt bad. But then with larger machines, the problem gets worse. Uh, Eater, um, just in steady state operation, we'll have a load on the materials which is higher th than what any material can withstand. So you have to be a little smart on how you dissipate that. It, it, it's all doable, like there are prob problems that can be solved, but you need to know that they are there and need to know a little bit on a few tricks on how to handle them. Right, so, so you're saying that like if you puff in, I guess these impurities or, or non-hydrogen species into the plasma that helps to keep keep the keep that diverter region cool but then of course those impurities can then make their way i guess into the the plasma where fusion is happening right so is that is that necessarily a bad thing or or what in your experience have you can you comment on that yeah so at the beginning what we had uh was limited plasma, they're called. So basically there's no diverter region on the bottom. Uh, there's just uh, something, a piece of material which enters in contact with the plasma. And then in that way, a lot of impurities get into the, uh, into the core. If the impurity content is too large, then impurities are bad. They're gonna just destroy uh, the reaction. They're gonna dilute too much. They're gonna radiate too much and it's just gonna be a bad time all around. Uh, when they introduced the diverter, at the beginning, the uh, impurity, uh, the main impurity was carbon, because uh, at least a jet, uh, and also in, at, uh, in ASDEX. So these are different tokamaks that we have in Europe. Um, and with carbon, the problem is that it dilutes the plasma a lot. So we, if, with 1%, uh, let's say of, uh, of carbon, you have a 6% uh, dilution. And then there's another parameter, which is important in all the, the discussion, which is called Z-effective. And it's basically the effective charge uh, of your plasma. 
and that enters sold, um, enters the turbulence in, in some way together with the dilution. So what you discover um, if you actually try to simulate on the plasma is that when you have impurities, uh, kind of middles of impurities, so carbon up to neon, maybe even argon, you're increasing the defective, increasing dilution, and the, um, the turbulence gets stabilized, which means basically that you can get away with a higher temperature. And so depending on the conditions, depending on your temperature, depending on which impurities you have, uh, depending on a lot of things, this can be from really bad to not that bad. And actually uh, the last part of my work uh, was with neon and with neon at jet, uh, it wasn't that bad. We saw that actually you could get the same neutron rate with and without neon. So that's a good thing in the sense, okay, we can get a lot of neon in the diversion and even if, it, even if it gets inside, it's still kind of fine. And the fun part, the funny part, at least for me uh, on, in all of these is that it's really situation dependent. So every situation with every different impurities will have a completely different outcome. And it's really difficult just to extrapolate what will be the optimal conditions in another machine. It's a really complica complicated and interesting problem. Yeah, that's right. Because like what neon isn't that far from carbon, I guess, on the periodic table. Yeah, it's 10 instead of six. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're quite similar if you look at the general, all the possible elements that could exist, but you're saying that their behavior in the plasma are very, are very different. Yes. Well, well, right. the, it's not that the behavior is very different, but the amount of dilution and turbulent stabilization you get is different and one ends up being bad and the other one ends up being good in some specific conditions. And then the problem we all have uh, is we want to know what will happen in ITER and we want to know what will happen in reactor. And you can't just say, okay, this is good in jet and so it will be good in ITER. There's a plethora, like an insane amount of small details that could change the picture completely. And I this guess this is, is where the, the modeling comes in, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I think this is one of the real difficulties of our uh, of our work in general of the fusion community that you can't easily extrapolate. So I guess one of the questions is that if you if it's so difficult to tell what the plasma is going to do without simulating or at least without having some simulation done on it, how accurate does the simulation need to be in terms of its impurity content, right? Like, do we need to get the exact species and its exact concentration correct? Or, or is there some room to play there like that, that we can say, okay, if it's not exactly correct, it will still give us the same, roughly the same uh, answer as if it were, right? Like what sensitivities are there? Yeah, so in my experience with this, you do have room to play, but you have much more room to play uh, with trends than with absolute values. Mm. So you can say, okay, this will be good or bad in, this condition, in these particular conditions. And then if the experiment is kind of 
in that ballpark uh, that you simulated, then it's going to be fine. Then the, the trend is going to be correct, probably. So when you say trends, like what, what do you, can you give an example of like, what is a trend that is, is that you notice that can also be applied then to uh, designing plasmas, let's say? Uh, well, yes, I mean, this uh, impurity business, it's kind of like that for, we can say, so what we can say, for example, is regarding the core of the plasma and the core of the plasma is a region that is inside another region called the pedestal. So basically, if you imagine your donut and you imagine to uh, a section of your donut is kind of a circle, let's say, the uh, part, um, the outer part where, where you have contact with the material is like the edge. Then you have a region which is the pedestal and then you have an in, inner region which is the core. And then if you use a model, um, which, okay, we, we'll come back to this because this is important, but if you use a model that it's not empirical and it's kind of um, based on fundamental physics, then you can say, in, and, and this model is able to uh, reproduce the jet result, you have good, you have, you can expect that it will also reproduce the ITER results, at least in the core. In the core, uh, I'm talking about this region in particular because here we have decent models uh, which are actually based on uh, fundamental physics and not do not have that much empirical uh, uh, contamination, let's say. I see. So <laughs> that's a unique choice of word. <laughs> but aside from that, like what I gather is then that the trends you're talking about is that the the models that we are using or at least the collection of models that we are using in coupled in this way are capable of recreating scenarios that already exist and thus we have some confidence that they can re, re or at least predict what is going to happen inside scenarios that are not currently existing right like is is that what you mean by a trend or or do you mean by a trend uh, like if we increase density then this increases yeah, right? okay no yes uh so that the, the first like the the trend itself um i meant yes so connection between or i increase a certain parameters what do the other parameters do mm, like I ideally see. you can have it on engineering parameters and then you turn valves in the control room, and then something happens to the plasma. So that you should be able to connect. But the, even the, the reason why I introduced this, the second topic of uh, models is that even uh, to get trends, you need this, this kind of modeling. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so a trend in jet won't mean a trend in ether, but a trend okay. that is captured by the model in jet is a, a, a trend that will be probably true also in ITER. So you're saying even if the exact like, direction of the trend changes because of some, some specifics of this ITER reactor, then if the model did it right in the previous reactor, it's more likely that it will do it right. It even should though capture it a trend. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Even though the trend changes, but it will capture the change in the trend as well. Exactly. 
or okay 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 so i guess coming down to it i guess it's probably a very difficult question but how how uh, i guess how confident are we in the current models models capability to represent ether considering ether this this reactor in the south of france is not is still under construction as far as i know <laughs> yeah yeah no, this is a this is a great question and uh also for whoever is listening to us i don't think we are super confident we are fairly confident in the sense we tried the model uh it kind of works well in certain conditions and then it's all uh building uh, out of them so you try to validate uh, one model and then also other models which have different assumptions then you just clump them together try to see how bad it is uh, if you change the assumption or if your assumptions are not really met and you try to build um, confidence that what you're doing is good first like um, predict first modeling as it's called which is basically first i predict the experiment and then uh i do the experiment and compare it back to what i predicted is starting now i think really is really taking off now that we can do this and it would be it would be very useful for iter for sure but i don't want to give the impression that we are absolutely sure of what will happen in it if we were we wouldn't need to build it if precisely we, exactly we, yeah we will just okay fine we know everything we go to demo mm -hmm. uh but so we I... still we still need to build it to build all these and to continue the building of confidence and to optimization precisely understanding what is going on well, I guess one one question is that: it, Do you think that that is a final? Uh, it is a worthwhile final objective to have predict first modeling capabilities, or is it sufficient to say the the model captures um, the physics that we know well enough, and then use the models to let's say delve into that that physics, which I guess is closer to to what you have been using them for, right? Like. It seems to be that there are there are two use cases of a model. Let's say, um, so is it worthwhile or is it something that we just have we have a model and then we build the machine and then we we they they exist in separate realms, right? Yeah. So in my opinion, it's it's gonna be worthwhile to build a predict first, but you also want the simplest thing that works. So you want you, you want to have your model the easiest uh, the easiest most simple thing that you can imagine, but it also has to work, which sadly fusion is still a pretty complex model. Right, and exactly. With that, with that is really uh, it will be really useful because with that you don't need to build another eater to know what will happen. You don't need to uh, run the scenario to know what will happen. You can explore many more possibilities and optimize uh, much more effectively. Okay. So this is the real advantage once we have that. It's just mm. price. You can build a thousand machines or you have, or, or you can have that. Right, exactly. So it doesn't take as much 
let's say both time and and money to run a simulation as opposed to building an entire machine right yes unless you are in uh, uh in tcb so they uh, i was talking uh, with some people at tcb the other day and uh, mentioning some really expensive simulation which is on the edge part which is more difficult and with very few assumptions mm -hmm. which means very long simulation time okay and if the input on the simulation was wrong it was actually cheaper to run an experiment with uh, different parameters than to rerun the simulation okay so there are <laughs> simulations in the field that are so expensive that it's on that side too yes okay. Well, that's... But okay, I mean, that, that, that is on a, a funny note on small talk amongst some very large simulations. <laughs> well, but that, that's true, right? There's always a break-even point if, if it requires so much computing resources, <laughs> actually, it turns out that an experiment is cheaper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's funny. But, but then how, I guess, like, coming back to the original point about the predict-first modeling, that how would you, how would you approach it, right, in, in how do we build a model such that it becomes predict first or has predict first capability or or do you foresee a certain pathway of combining all the information and expertise we have such that you know we, we can get a predict first model but uh, without too much without too much extra investment quote unquote okay so then the answer to this question is actually pretty complex in the sense that you, from my perspective, you kind of need to build from two parts, like from two sides. One is the really uh, fundamental simulations, that, which is like with the, the ones uh, that I was talking about, really expensive, huge simulations that don't really assume much. So you just take your, uh, your system you do the smallest amount of simulations of, of assumptions. So you're kind of sure that what you put there is correct. And then you run it and it's going to be absolutely huge and it's going to take a lot of time. And then you're going to have this one point in these specific conditions, which you will have an answer with. And then you want to go down and assume more. So, okay, what if this is not important and I can go faster? What if the other thing is not important? Of course, that thing might be important and might be important in some conditions, uh, but you want a fast model. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, you will connect with the other side that is comparison of your model uh, with the experiment. So a very simple model, you can compare it with the experiment and then the validation process starts. Mm hmm. Yeah. So I guess maybe to explain what validation is, if you so, could. Yes. So I mean, with validation, I mean, when you uh, compare your model prediction with the experiment, and in the end, you can say, okay, this actually is very close to the experiment. So all the assumptions I made are actually good in this case. So they, they, it works. I can use this fast model to predict uh, what will actually happen in a much more complex system, but a lot of it is ignorable. Okay, okay. Yeah, so like in that sense, it's more, um, 
I guess the question is that if, if you so found out in this validation process that your, your model is insufficient in some re reason or in some regime of plasmas. Yeah, then you have to go up again in the mm -hmm. chain of assumptions you made and understand, okay, where does it break? Right. And I guess this is the process that is currently already, of course, currently already happening within yeah, the course. community. But it, it, in some sense, what we've, what, what we've seen and what I've seen, I guess, is that this, this process, this chain of going back and forth, up and down is not extremely efficient or, or, or has problems in communicating those requirements and constraints back up and down the chain. So from your aspect as someone who has also worked in this field, do you see any way of improving that uh, type of, of feedback, let's say, between experiments and modelers and physicists? So I think this is a relatively uh, new topic, but with relatively new, I mean, a few years that we are actually able to do something like this. Before it was mostly uh, other methods, which work, but not as well, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but the, what, what um, methods are these? Well, I just asking what methods are these? Ah, <laughs> uh, it's just scalings. So they oh, scalings, work yeah. incredibly well, but they uh, it's difficult to extrapolate. Basically, scaling for whoever is listening to us is um, you take the parameters and you build uh, some sort of um, relation with the, the with expo exponents. Um, and that should have, you value, you fit them to the experiments and then that should give you uh, kind of the trend of the, uh, of the experiments with other engineering parameters. Right. It's, it's dimensional just... parameters are also used a lot. There's a whole word there, uh, which would take a lot of time to explain. They work surprisingly well. Like I was surprised, for example, with ITER, uh, they did some scaling work quite a long time ago. And then they did the full simulations not that much time ago, very, very recent. And they agreed surprisingly well, like it was actually correct. But it's still dangerous to extrapolate with scalings, especially if there's some specific regions of the parameter space that might be optimized and you will never find it with a scaling. So I guess in, in contrast to the scaling, what is this new, this new methodology? Is... So the new methodology is actually to model, to try to model the uh, full tokamak. Right. Okay. So it is it, what you were talking about to, yes. to take these like advanced models and then <clears throat> exactly. distill them down into more simple models and then use it to compare against experiments. Yeah. So since it's a decently recent, uh, method, I think all the infrastructure that need, that will enable this to be done in a more consistent and systematic way is still not there. And also, uh, Fusion is a, is a large community and a lot of people know a lot of different things. And while we do try to communicate uh, through conferences, and through meetings and et cetera, and et cetera. Uh, the, it takes time before all parts are aware of all the possibilities 
uh, that are around. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like, I guess in also my experience, the communication between even experts, I mean, we have email and the occasional conference, but it's, it's really hard between all the busy schedules of everyone involved to actually coordinate, you know, something on this scale. Is it, is it, is yeah. that also in your experience? Right? No, no, that definitely, definitely yeah. it's, but it, I kind of do understand where this is coming from because it's usually, I don't know if in particular, of course I'm biased because I work on it and then I learn a lot of it and it seems huge, but it's really huge. And another thing that complicates uh, the matter is that you need to know a little bit of everything to really, um, have an idea of what is happening because the various parts of the system are really interconnected and then all the experiments have uh, and how the measurements have ta are taken have a really deep impact on your modeling and you just need to know a lot so you need to meet a lot of people and to uh, summarize everything in a nice consistent way is a titanic task i think so I, I do understand where it's coming from. On the solution part, I am not sure I have them for you. That's fair. I it's, mean, like it's if, not easy. If the solution were easy, it would have been done, right? <laughs> yes. Like this is the way I I always see these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, okay, but it is it is a it is a challenge in the community then, uh, also from your perspective too. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Coordinate things at this at this level. Okay, but but is there is there anything that you could say that would help at least at a very you know like a, a tiny bit make it a tiny bit better? Um, is there anything that you could advise, let's say, or things that would help you to coordinate better? Right. Mm, it's all I I feel that we have all the tools like we have uh, the conferences. We try to do documentation. Uh, maybe, okay, what could help is to reserve, let's say, part of the time of each researcher uh, specifically to that. So, okay, don't, don't do your own work for this part. Uh, just try to you know, organize. Because also, I mean, also the paper writing is meant to go in that way that paper is a method to communicate and so are and the conferences end up, right yeah and you but but you end up with so much material that you can't read all the papers so you yeah. try to read the ones that are uh useful for you and still to have a overarching view of everything is not easy so we, maybe we can think about uh, a few solutions um, but it's not an easy problem no, for sure not, because as, as you just mentioned, it's also that the the expertise of the people is so wide and, and varied yeah. and so deep also, right? So each each scientist uh, who's doing work in a specific field knows so much about that that other scientists may not have the same level of, of depth in. Yeah, so and at the, at the same time, uh, yeah. on the other hand, Everyone knows so little. 
exactly they know they they know they're tiny yeah i always have this feeling Mm -hmm. okay i know this is little little part but then there's a huge amount of things that might help me but that i don't know so there's also a, a, a danger that like even though you set this time aside for this communication to happen that the communication will be a little will will not be effective or not be used that time won't be used to its full extent because a lot of it will be you know explaining context and explaining the details of 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 you know why this is this way um uh, is 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 that a danger or do you think there is fundamentally some way to communicate that um to communicate what is important without having to to basically teach someone the entirety of your field <laughs> right <laughs> no no that there has to be a way uh, i think it also comes with experience you learn to have a more hokai uh, vision later when you interact more uh, i am still of course on the beginner side but still you you see this problem at all levels like it's it's there and it's kind of normal that it's it's there well, but I think that the conversation, even even at this beginner level, because I'm I'm at the beginner level too. Let's be honest. But uh, I think that this conversation at this level is also important because it's people at this level who will, you know, who do also a fair amount of the body of research and also will at some point in time move up the chain. So if you've thought about it, how it operates with us. And try to make it, you know, get also give feedback currently, but also as you you advance upwards, that you keep these ideas in mind, that you can kind of put them in place when you have the capability to, right? Yes, no, no, for sure, that's yeah, that's yeah. planning and dis- discussing about these kind of things, throwing ideas around, and always also yeah, that what we're doing now, throwing ideas really around, like to a larger public and see uh, what the collective mind came up with. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was also one of the reasons behind the, the, this podcast idea in the first place is that we want to put these ideas out there, um, I guess, to, so that other people who, who might be thinking of same, the similar things or at least might have wanted to try a solution but didn't realize other people were were interested in it (laughs) are more encouraged to contribute right so um yeah that's true but i guess in in that in that same in that same line is it uh is it something that you see that can be actually improved or is it always going to be some sort of, or or is the the inefficiencies that are currently here sort of necessary simply because everybody is so specialized? I don't like, think they're necessary. Uh, I do understand where they come from, but it, you of course can also you can always improve. There there won't be a perfect solution or a perfect system for this, I think, but mm-hmm. there can be improvement, and I think. There, there, there will be, in a sense, that they, the community is kind of integrating uh, in a more compact way. It's also getting larger, which is 
uh, a problem. Well, I, I, what, one good thing about this whole, whole, I guess, you know, the time that was 2020, uh, basically is that it put a lot of people online. So things like this, this kind of like, you know, Zoom meeting, offline discussion has improved dramatically. I think beforehand, it was mainly conferences that I would meet anybody from outside my institute. Right. Yes. No, that is true. The online life, the, the online community uh, could be really useful for this to build something more uh, worldwide, because, of course, the future community is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 like the whole world is working on this, so it can be very spread out, but online it's much easier to get to create an environment which is close. Like I can be close, I can just zoom someone from the US and say, hey, I have this, this idea. Uh, that might be a very useful thing. I guess one, one question- Came out I... of 2020, just to give a you know, positive yeah. note to the, this disaster of a year. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but one thing that I have to ask is that, I guess, in your in your times uh, communicating through this medium, do you, have you found any sort of or experienced any sort of channels of communication that were uh, particularly effective, let's say, or particularly useful for you? Hmm. Well, one versus one Zoom meeting uh, are useful. And then the, the, the other thing I did was a lot of like presentations with question and answer, very standard. I wonder if you if one could introduce a different kind of uh, different kind of way to do this, something more interactive. Like for example, yeah, the mm -hmm. the thing we used. Uh, in um, in our group, and you were also part, so you know. But for the other people, uh, this gather thing, which is basically a um, online room or a set of rooms where you can actually go around with your little car character and talk with people, um, like you were in a room. So when there's like vicinity um, diagnostic in the in the program, and when you go close to the person, then your audio is connected to him. So it feels really like a room. And then you could kind of imagine if you get quite a few people and you try to structure a meeting in that environment, uh, it could be very effective, especially for people who live physically very far from each other. And then you just have this room uh, or this set of room where you can go and talk uh, with other researchers, that would be fun. That could be interesting. Yeah, I know. I know a number of other conferences also uh, based in the U.S. also try to use this this gather uh, in a full conference setting, sort of like to replace the conference. So normally in the oh. conference, you can just talk to this person and go grab a private room, but then they set it up that the. But of course, it was only for the social events, not for the actual conference itself. But yeah, one could, I guess, see that uh, 
that you could use the similar platform for the actual conference, right? So to have rooms where people present and then people can walk around and, you know, have private discussions on their own if there's if there's nothing happening that is particularly interesting to them at the moment. Yes, right? you could envision even a more uh, daily thing to mm. have a few of these rooms where people can just go uh, in the community and talk within each other. That would, be, would be fun. So it'd be sort of like a virtual institute, like yeah. like sign in for your day at work into this platform and then whoever's there you can talk to <laughs> yeah on the side of your normal work you're also there yeah yeah. yeah. if you're in the office maybe it's a little bit more difficult because of course you need to talk and it gets a little bit crowded but yeah. especially working from home if some work from home will last uh, even past these uh, next few months um, then you could think about setting up something like that yeah but actually that's that's an interesting question. I guess we're we're deviating completely from the side, <laughs> yes, but that's that's fine. That's part of that's the reason I set this up. But how do you think that the return to, you know, on uh, offline work will be like? It would be so. It was weird for me to start this this way of work always from home. Uh, at the beginning, for example, I needed to find a routine so I wasn't as uh, productive and then it kind of settled down for me and I went back kind of to normal, well, new normal. Uh, so I guess it would be similar going back. I have to, I will have to get used to normal working again. I, on one side, I do hope that a couple of days uh, a week or even just one day a week uh, the work from home will remain because it it works sometimes. Also, if you have to commute, uh, it takes off some stress from the week. So that it, that could be nice. And at the same time, I do want to go back to the office. Mm. Uh, it is kind of a, a nice thing, like the um, to go to the office to have your routine, to go for the coffee, to go for to eat with the colleagues, uh, even to just to see kind of, people. Yeah, yeah. I, I do miss it a little bit, so I hope that we'll be able to go back to the office at least one day a week, relatively soon. Yeah, but I can imagine having some sort of mix between offline and an online type of work, so work from home and work from office would be ideal in some sense because also also me i have had a huge boost in productivity because of the fact that you know i didn't have to do the commute and there were certain i guess not necessarily luxuries but privacies offered by by staying in the house right like you yeah, can really sure. sit down uh, and focus <laughs> the, the period of writing my thesis also because of you know time limit stress and you have to write the thesis but being at home, it was literally something like a hundred percent focus on that. So the productivity was completely insane. Yeah, that's true. Like, and also, also like, normally you have chores to do around the house, like just the cleaning, dishes, laundry, all this sort of stuff. Being working from home allowed you to do that 
while working. Whereas if I'm in the office, that's, I can't come back and just do my dishes in the middle of the day. Right? So <laughs> like, it's not feasible anymore. So it becomes, although I do have to say that the separation, I guess, of work and life by going to the office is also, yes. also crucial in some aspect, right? Yeah, you, I, I can live with a melted uh, work-life uh, situation for a while, but not for too long. At some, at some point, it's nice to have, uh, you know, you go to the office, you go out, and then you're out. Like the rest of the day, you don't do anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, yeah, but maybe because we are, uh, we were PhD uh, students, so that's still a little bit more merged than other work situations. Um, but it was probably a thing during this lockdown and working from home. For sure. Merge. I, yeah, for sure. There was no, there was a, I think there was a point for me also that it was like, yeah, you're working until like, unseemly hours <laughs> just because your computer is there right it's on it's already on the the the, web, the websites or the the programs that you normally work on so why not check up on this simulation why not read this paper right uh, just just the last paper i know you know it's bad like... <laughs> yeah. super not not the healthiest not no the healthiest attitude. I, I will say that for sure but i yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So for a little while, I can get, I can see what you mean, but not, not forever. But I think it's also important to, to, I guess, communicate these sorts of things because it's sort of not really known how, how much work happens outside of working hours, let's say for a typical researcher. It's, I think it's, it was like a, a forced experiment so before you like the the, um, the boss wouldn't say okay we're from home you're gonna be the the same productive as ever yeah I don't don't really know uh, never tried to have someone work from a long time and you don't know what is gonna do the, to the productivity so you you're, you don't want to do that so to let people work from home and now that we know what happens because we had to uh, then maybe it's a little bit more, bit more acceptable. That's why I hope that a couple of like one or two days a week would be fine. Yeah, that it would be nice. It would be nice. Uh, I, I mean, I don't see why it would be necessarily problematic. But of course, yeah, we, we're not in any position to decide that. So, <laughs> but I agree with you. It would be very nice if that were the case. Uh, okay, and I guess we're. Almost at the moment where I should be wrapping this up, I think we're at like 45 minutes in, but um, I guess I have one final question for you is, do you have anything that you would like to promote uh, that's upcoming either in your research or scientific career that you want to, or opportunity coming up that you'd like to uh, tell everybody who's going to watch this? So. What I'm going to do now uh, is, the, so I finished here, almost finished here at DIFFER, wrote my thesis um, about all the things that I was talking about before. 
And now we're gonna be part of a, a larger project that we started uh, um, here in Europe. So we go to Switzerland. And the idea here is very much in line with what we talked about. So it, it will be on uh, this kind of modeling, uh, validation of our modeling, and we'll try to um, use it also, maybe to plan some experiments um, and this kind of things. So in general, uh, to this theme of trying to uh, let people understand the options that are around, I do think that once this is uh, up and running, then we'll be able to help the community. And even uh, that's also the dream uh, uh, of our supervisor, Jonathan, to help in the control room. So to say, okay, now, now to get this result, you change this parameter, you change the valve and you puff a little bit during this time. And then it works exactly how we predicted. So. I do think, and I do hope, that that capability is gonna come online. So this is my beat on uh, what I think should be available to the community and to, to let you know. And you're gonna be obviously there. involved in that. I'm gonna so. be, yeah, I'm gonna be in there. Great. I'm gonna be trying to set this up. This is, this will be fun. I mean, if we can actually go in the control room and. Uh, suggest what to do to the experimentalist, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, and you're, you're uh, at least from my experience working with you, you're, you're a great scientist and a fantastic mod plasma modeler. So it's good Thank to you. have you on the team. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going <laughs> yes. to be a fun time. I think that's an exciting new times for, for plasma modeling in general. It's so good to have you there to be part Thanks. of that. And uh, okay, so then thank you again for coming on board and having this discussion. Oh, thank I'm you sure for inviting me. Yeah, no worries. Um, it's a new initiative. So I think we had a very productive discussion and I hope everybody found at least some value or insight or some renewed interest even in this uh, type of communication, if not the field itself. And uh, with that, I guess we'll sign off. Thanks everybody for joining and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye everybody. Bye.